Well, as Dozy said, today we begin our autumn uh, sermon series and study series based on Ephesians. And today we're going to look at Ephesians 1. What I'm going to do is read Ephesians 1 now. So if you've got a Bible handy, it'd be good to follow it and keep your Bibles open because uh, then as I speak, I'll be referring to various passages. Now I'm going to read this morning from the New Living Translation. Um, you're probably following it in the NIV or something else, but it's, it's good to sometimes hear the word in different forms. It can kind of spark off something or perhaps drive something in that you've not noticed before. So beginning at Ephesians 1 and verse 1. This letter is from Paul chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus, who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his Son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, For he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth. The good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honour at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under authority, under the authority of Christ, and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Paul wrote this letter around AD 61-ish, um, just a, a handful of years before he was executed. We're not quite sure when he was executed, but it wasn't that long after Paul had written this letter. And it was probably only 30 or so years when Paul wrote this letter since Jesus had died and risen and ascended. So all those great events in Jesus' life were fresh in people's minds. It's important as we approach the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter, that we set out to try and determine what it was that actually Paul was saying to those who would read the letter. Paul was obviously writing in the middle of the first century and we're sort of in the beginning of the 21st century. So Paul was writing out of his culture as a Pharisee, as a Jew, and his dramatic conversion into a brand new Christian faith that he was a huge missionary to get off the ground. He was like a booster rocket sending a rocket up into space, the booster stage. And we're coming in with all our 21st century sophistication, supposedly. And so it's, we've got to try and get under the cover to understand what Paul was saying, and then as we understand what Paul was actually saying, what he expected his readers to read and hear and take away, and then apply it in our own particular situations. So be prepared to be challenged. And it's only then that we can bring greater glory to God. So we're going to embark today on a voyage of discovery. And we have to go out prepared to see things that perhaps we've not seen or noticed before. Prepared to have perhaps preconceived ideas that we may have challenged. And as I said, all to bring greater glory to God in our 
own lives and in the lives of the church. So right at the beginning, Paul is clear about who he's writing to. He's writing to God's holy people in Ephesus, and probably this was a circular letter, so it wasn't just to the church in uh, the city of Ephesus, but in the neighbouring places as well. As I said, Paul was nearing the end of his life. He was writing from prison, so he was desperate to get out his thoughts to as far as to as many people as possible. So I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. So this is written for Christ followers, for believers, for Christians. So after quite a brief introduction for Paul's letters anyway, Paul writes a lengthy passage praising God Now, if we were reading this in the New Testament Greek, the whole of verse 13 through to 14 would be one long sentence. No pauses, no commas or anything. It would just go on and on and on. But um, we're not going to do that. We're going to break it down into three parts. In this passage, though, um, we're just looking at 3.14 now, In this little passage, there are so many Christian doctrines. Paul doesn't really explain them in great detail, but he mentions them, so people must have been familiar with what he meant. But just to give you an idea, um, in this passage we get the doctrines of election, predestination, and adoption. And if you've read uh, the passage in the NIV, you'll actually see at least two of those three words. And it would be easy to get bogged down discussing what election means, what predestination means, what adoption means. But I think it's more essential that we begin our journey with an understanding of the big picture, where Paul was coming from, a bit of his background and why he wrote the way that he did. And that is exactly what Paul starts off in this section. He's painting a huge, sweet, broad-brush picture that in the following sections he will expand a bit more. And also, as we understand the big picture, we can understand better our own particular roles within that big picture. How God works in our lives how he works through our church, how he works through the body of Christ, the worldwide church, and how he was doing that back in AD 60 or so. So let's have a look at the first point we're going to look at, which is summed up in that God's people in the Messiah, and it's important to to remember that it's in Christ, in the Messiah, are chosen by God's grace And in fact, Paul goes on to say, God chose us in Christ before the world was made. Now this is mind-boggling stuff, and I hope that during the week ahead you'll kind of think through some of this. But just let's have a look at the words. So we're going to look at 3 to 6. 
All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Now, the heavenly realms here, um, it, it didn't, Paul didn't write heaven, he wrote heavenly realms. So obviously at the top of the list of heavenly realms would be what we would refer to glibly as heaven, where God and Jesus are sat together, as it were. But also in the heavenly realms would be the, um, all those things that pull the strings in the world. So all these kind of evil stuff, as well as, as the good stuff. And um, what Paul's saying here is that we have all that we need. We're blessed with all the benefits, of spiritual benefits, that we need lift ourselves up to God and to defeat the powers of evil that are working against us spiritually as well. So verse 4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his, in his eyes, holy and blameless in his sight. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on those who belong to his dear son. The thrust of that message there is nothing, absolutely nothing that we can do to rescue ourselves. I mean, when I had um, an aortic aneurysm, I, I was totally helpless. There was nothing I could do. I just had to receive and be cured. Which, praise God, I was. And the same with us, there's nothing, nothing whatsoever to boast about being saved. It's just a matter of God's absolute grace and all we can do is respond because he saved us. And again, if you think about that and go right down the path, it will probably shatter what some of you believe. As one archbishop once said, the only thing that we have contributed to being saved is being a sinner. But being saved is not the be-all and end-all, it's just a stage, a step on the journey. And being saved is not just for our own personal benefit. We're saved for a purpose. Forget the whole idea that I'm saved to go to heaven when I die. End of. That's not Paul's picture that he's trying to explain here at all. For Paul, you were saved for the purpose of whatever God can accomplish through you. And Paul, most likely at this point, was coming from his Jewish background and he had in mind 
the Old Testament story of the Exodus, when the Israelites, slaves in Egypt, were set free to go to the Promised Land. God had chosen Abraham, and we talked about God choosing Christians. God had chosen Abraham and his descendants through Jacob, who later became known as Israel, for a purpose. And that purpose was to take out the message of salvation to the world, to help restore the world to what God intended it to be. And a lot of the historical books in the Old Testament tell us how they tried to do that and how they sometimes achieved parts and failed miserably in other times. But Paul tells us that God chose us. Now the us here that Paul's talking about is all Christians, Christians everywhere. Those who believe in Jesus are now to play their part in bringing God's ancient purposes to be. So again, this kind of Western obsession we have about ourselves, and great, I'm saved, Paul wouldn't understand at all. You have become a Christian to do something for God. It's not about you, it's about what you do for God. So move on now to point two, which is verses seven to 10. And the point here is that forgiveness of sins is the real deliverance from the real slave master. Remember in the Exodus story, the Israelites were freed from slavery. So Paul's taking that theme through of being delivered from being a slave. But he's honed in on who the real slave master is, i.e. sin. And that deliverance has been accomplished through Jesus' sacrificial blood. So just quickly read that section. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us, along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything on heaven and earth. We've got great echoes here of what John would later write in the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter 2021, when heaven and earth come together. Paul's already talking about that um, at this point. So the first point I, I spoke about, that we're saved for a purpose. And the second point is how we are saved and what we are saved from. And Paul would have had in mind here that when the Egyptians were saved, if you remember the story, the angel of death went through the land of Egypt and the houses where the 
the Jews, the Israelites, lived had been marked by the blood of a lamb, and the angel of death passed over them, and, but the Egyptian firstborn males uh, were killed. And come the morning, when they found so many uh, dead Egyptians around, they were only too keen to kick the Israelites out. When the Israelites left Egypt, they were then free to start to go towards, to journey towards the promised land. And so again, you see, our salvation is like our freedom point so that we can begin the journey towards the promised land. To what God's plan is, as it says in verse 10. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. Point three. This is in verses 11 to 14. And Paul here makes the point that we've received an inheritance and the Holy Spirit guarantees that we have received that inheritance. So verse 11, furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance. Another hint there that God has chosen us, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. God promised to the Israelites the land of Canaan. That's what he said to Abraham, one day this will be your land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Sounds like a land full of crunchy bars or something, but... They set off, once they were set free, after the Exodus event, they set off through the wilderness to claim their inheritance. But when we read about that, they made very, very heavy weather of it. It took them 40 years to get where they could have got within six months. And all but a handful of those who were over 20 when they set off died on the route. So there's kind of a warning there. Why do we make it so heavy? They didn't trust God. They rebelled against God. They complained about Moses, their leader. Sounds typical of a church. But the big picture is we're making it so heavy for ourselves we're not getting to where God wants us to be. The church in the present age 
is on a journey, just like those Israelites were when they went through the wilderness. We've been rescued by Christ. We're set free from the slavery of sin. And it now journeys to the promised land, the promise the promised inheritance that God has given us. But as I said earlier, I hinted earlier, that promise is not heaven, but a world that's renewed by God's power and by God's love, when heaven and earth effectively become one. So it's not so much escaping from here, but actually bringing heaven here to where we are. Heaven and earth together, full of God's presence, full of God's grace, full of God's everything that God brings. Love, justice, peace, you name it. Righteousness. And Jesus will be the central figure So the big question is, how do we know that we're on the right path or not? And the answer that Paul gives is the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul is thinking, do you remember when the Israelites were going through the desert, they had the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire to guide them? That's now God's presence in the Holy Spirit. And Paul goes on to say that the Holy Spirit lives here, in each one of us. God can't get closer than that. We don't have to trundle up the road to a temple. We don't have to cart a tabernacle tent around with us. In a sense, Paul and Hebrews say that we are God's temple, the Spirit's temple. And we don't, we really, really don't absorb what that truly means. The Spirit marks out Christians to be the people guaranteed to inherit God's new world. So just a quick recap before we do the second half, which is shorter. One, God's people in the Messiah are chosen by God's grace. In fact, God chose us in Christ before the world was made. That'll keep you up all night trying to work that one out. Forgiveness of sins is a real difference from the real slave master and it has been accomplished through Jesus' sacrificial blood. And three, we have received an inheritance and the Holy Spirit guarantees it. And we're told by Paul that God did all of this so that we would praise and glorify him. So again, it's not about us, but it's about God. But it's one thing to know or to vaguely even understand the big picture. It's another thing to live it out. So in this second section of Ephesians 1, Paul starts to explain how we live it out. And he talks of two things, knowledge 
and power. And both of those will help us. Believers have been given every spiritual benefit, including what we would now call the doctrine of election, being God's elect, adoption, grace, redemption, forgiveness, insight, knowledge of God's secret plan, and the seeding of the Holy Spirit. All of that was in the bit that we just looked at. But Paul now goes from this act of praise of God, which that one long sentence really was, to a prayer to God. He prays that all believers will deepen their relationship with God and experience in a deeper way the spiritual benefits with which they have been enriched. We live in a world where power is important. Whether, as we were reminded yesterday, that power is in the hands of terrorists and they try to intimidate people with the power of fear, whether it's military power, financial power, or whatever, political power, we live in a world of power and all of our lives are affected by that in one way or another. But Paul says that the greatest display of power the world has ever seen was when the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead and he ascended into heaven to sit at God's right hand. Such a thing had not happened before and it has not happened since. And so central for Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church was that the people of the church, he was longing that those people would come to realise that that same power that displayed clearly to the world Christ's resurrection and ascension on that resurrection Sunday that power that was is vested in Jesus is now available to the church for its daily use. Yet when we look at the modern church, what do we see? Often we see a church in retreat. A church concerned more about keeping institutions going than what God's great plan for the world is. And it's like we've got this huge powerhouse, if you like, a nuclear power station, but we don't know which button to push to get the reactors going. And the sad thing is, we then invent all sorts of theologies that justify our position rather than going back to the things that Paul was saying. We've got available to us a tremendous power. I said the Holy Spirit lives in you. It's like you're, 
like little nuclear submarines going out into the world. I know it's a bad example because they're kind of they're designed to kill people, but we're there to save. But you can see what I'm trying to say. We've got the power, but we don't use it. It's like having a, a car and keeping it in the garage and polishing it up every Sunday, but never actually sitting in it and driving it anywhere. So it's of little use, really. And that's kind of where the church is. And we've got to shake that off. It's the image people have of the church because often that's the way the church believes. Not all churches, I'm talking more perhaps of the Church of England, but um, so many churches are going against God's will at the moment. That power will be seen not only just in the great miracles, if you like, the ones that Jesus in the early church did, those great signs of God's kingdom on earth, but in small things, as perhaps a Christian suddenly believes in the power of prayer and starts to pray more. Perhaps someone gets a a gift that they can use that again takes God's love wider into the world. So, you know, it's not just the big sort of showy things, but many little things that all add up together. In the Olympic Games, um, you know, these cyclists, well, they, they just do silly little things to just gain like an extra quarter of a mile an hour. They, you know, wear costumes and grease them so that the airflow diminishes and things like that. And so often it's the lots of little things that build up to something big that's powerful. And perhaps the biggest thing, the biggest miracle in us may be that we stop living life for ourselves and that we live it for God's glory to go through that psychological phase or spiritual phase when we truly realise what it is to say Jesus is King. So those chosen and adopted as God's children are to be his agents out in the present world. And collectively throughout the world form Christ's body on earth. So welcome to the journey. I've tried to hint today that we've all got a way to go. And I really do feel deeply in my heart that if St Paul's doesn't change because of this sermon series, then I think we've failed. I think we've got an opportunity. We've got a fresh start, sort of post-Covid. We're coming into a new part of the year before we run up to Easter. And I think we really have to change. 
and perhaps at the end of this we know what changes are required. I just finish on a bit of a sad note, which is a warning. About 30 years after Paul wrote his letter to the churches in and around Ephesus, John on the island of Patmos wrote his book of Revelation. And this is what he wrote about the church in Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars. Well, I won't read that bit. So the angel of the church in Ephesus, he said, you write these words to him. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. All good stuff. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So there's a warning. Let's take this opportunity to perhaps to get closer back to the church that Paul intended the Ephesian church to be. And do everything that we can not to slip back as they obviously did as one generation passed and another took over. So as we start our travel through the book of Ephesians, let us note the things that they did in that early church when everything was fresh and new, like a springtime, and then think through how we can follow suit, all to the praise and glory of God. Amen.